Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm excited today to have the opportunity to introduce Sally Bruce into the conversation. Welcome, Sally. Thanks very much, Melissa. Great to be here. Sally, I'm going to touch on your bio briefly so that our audience have got some background and then we'll jump into the conversation. So Sally Bruce is the COO and CFO of Culture Amp, the world's leading employee experience platform with more than um, 4,000 business customers in 47 countries around the world. Sally's worked for more than 25 years as a senior executive at global organisations and her roles have included Chief Executive Officer of AMP Bank, Chief Financial Officer, Business and Personal Banking at National Australia Bank, and a number of senior roles at the Macquarie Group. Sally also serves as Director of Rising, formerly the Melbourne International Arts Festival, and also a Director at Chief Executive Women. Welcome again, Sally. Thank you. So can I ask you, um, in the first instance, for people in our audience who haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before, can you tell us a little bit about your journey and I think importantly, why you are who you are? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think I'm really defined by some things that uh, were kind of gifted to me. A, I'm a country girl, uh, so I grew up in rural Queensland and um, I'm the youngest of six. And they have, they, those things have stayed with me. Uh, I originally went into banking. Uh, and as you said, I had, have had about 25 years in banking. And it was really prompted by being a country kid with parents who are small business owners and really recognising that where the capital went to was really important in determining people's destinies. So as a little tacker, I said to my mum, I'm going to work in a bank because I know that the country people need money. Mm. And uh, I didn't understand the kind of concept of directing capital, et cetera, but I was experiencing it. And as small business owners, your mum and dad were worried about the 50 mortgages of the team, of the people that were working for them um, rather than their own. And so really put me on a journey that my mum said right from the start, you won't be a banker, you'll be too bored. Uh, did I prove her wrong? <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it was really, uh, you know, in pursuit of how do we get capital in the hands of the right people? And I'm a really big believer in that with enough capital and a, a believer in sufficiency rather than, you know, having more than you need, just so many problems go away, you know, relationship pressures, education of your children, you know, mental health strain, uh, you know, kind of crime goes down, addiction goes down, gambling, all of those things go down if you have enough. And so that put me on the path. Um, the other thing is, say, I tell people I'm the youngest of six. I think that's really important to know about me because it explains a few things. Firstly, I love people. Like, you know, I'm meant to be in a community and in a crowd. And so 
um, work and the people sport of that is a great joy for me. Mm. The second is I'm the youngest of six, so I have no regard for hierarchy. <laughs> I love um, that. You know, right from the get-go, you know, I had to be taller, I had to be in the conversation, et cetera, and that's really stayed with me as well. And um, I'm really grateful for, you know, the grounding of both those things. So a long career in banking, um, which was really uh, quite, you know, I was really, really blessed, uh, three kind of stages of that. The first with Macquarie Group and, you know, what a place to start your career uh, amazingly just invested in me to grow as much as I could. And uh, my first uh, job running a PL with them was at 21. I think wow. that's quite remarkable to be given that opportunity. And then I moved from there to NAB. And uh, NAB, again, was really a magnificent organisation for me. I ran their mortgages business for many years and then uh, was the CFO, which is the role you discussed before for the personal and business bank. Had never been a CFO, um, so kind of surprised myself to find myself doing that job. Uh, and then jumped from there to AMP Bank, which was just a joyful role for me, uh, where I was CEO of the bank and I really had an opportunity to shape it according to my values in an unrestricted way, mm. uh, which was absolutely brilliant. But also one of the great lessons of life um, is who owns you is important. And so... Yes. AMP Bank was a really separate entity with its own board, et cetera, um, but was owned by AMP, obviously. And when AMP went into crisis, that created crisis in the subsidiary as well. So lots and lots of learnings from that. Mm. Um, I can keep going, but as you know, I'm here at Culture App now, which is really, uh, uh, you know, a, a hook turn from where I was. Um, so many questions to dive into. I'm going to go straight into. I'm assuming that you you haven't ever had much challenge finding your voice, being the youngest of six. I think I worked it out pretty quickly, and uh, by all accounts, I walked at nine months, uh, which you know, as you know, is really young. And anyone who knows me knows that actually I'm really uncoordinated. So it's quite remarkable that I found my feet at nine months. So I can only imagine I found my voice as well because I had to kind of muscle in. So let's go to um, to each of those jobs, I guess, a little bit and just think about some of those roles. And so let's start with Macquarie. And, you know, I remember, um, I mean, it was a big decision for you to move on from Macquarie, right? Tell us you about that. Yeah, I am. Um, so I started Macquarie when I was 18. They hired me while I was in first year at uni. So, you know, literally I grew up there. Mm. And, um, you know, that was just, you know, such good luck to land in such a wonderful organisation like Macquarie. But I was, I'd been there 20 years and I just wasn't satisfied anymore. And, uh, you know, it was niggling me for quite some time that I didn't really think I was learning anymore. Mm. Um, I could play the meetings in my head before I got there because I knew who all the players were. I knew them well. I respected them. But I could also kind of work out and get in front of what the dialogue would be. Mm. And I started to get anxious about, am I not learning? And I'm not a great person to be bored. I should be challenged and I should be stretched. And I had two small children at that stage and I think a very practical person would have said, you know, you've got a great job 
in an amazing organization, I wouldn't disrupt that now. Mm. And I sat for about two years before I made the decision to leave. Uh, and I had lots of people telling me that it was an absolute madness, absolute madness to leave. But I knew, I knew in my heart that my time was done there. I had loved it. It had served me well. I had served it well. But if I was going to continue to grow uh, and continue the journey of learning, um, I needed to go somewhere else. So um, someone literally said to me when I took the job at NAB, uh, you know, you've just gone from one end of the bell curve to the other. What are you thinking? And I tell you, gee, you know, think, yeah, I knew this is a pretty big move, but I didn't expect everyone to be so vocal about it. But it was brilliant. It really, you know, my heart was telling me the right thing. And I said, I have no regrets for my time at Macquarie, but gee, you know, what I've learned since, I would never have learned there. I would have learned different things, but mm. I'm pretty happy with the decisions I've made. So you're at NAB, and one of the things I remember you telling me that has um, stayed with me was when they offered you the CFO role, you weren't quite sure they meant to offer it to you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, um, I'd been, uh, as I said, running the mortgage business, which was, you know, uh, their largest product. And so that had gone really well, and I turned that around. And so then they gave me all the consumer products to run, and that's pretty sensible progression. Go, okay, you've done that there take on the rest yep. and so I was doing that and I hadn't been doing that very long and um, I got sort of a tap to say hey would you be the CFO for the personal bank and the business bank and like that's 80% of NAB it's uh, yes. each one of those is like the size of an ASX 50 com company mm -hmm. and um, I've always been a bit brave and crazy and I thought oh I'd have a crack of that and then but I paused and I said to them, like, you know, you do know I'm not a CFO. I'm not a chartered accountant. I've never been a trained in accounting. So rather than us have an awkward conversation in six months' time when you work that out, did you really mean to offer me this job? Yeah. And uh, I just thought I have to put this on the table because it's a niggle in the back of my mind. And very gratefully, they went, yes, we know all of that. None of that is a surprise to us. Uh, but we love how you run businesses. You're commercial. We see your, your um, numeric acumen. You know how the economics work. Uh, and we need strategic financial um, guidance. Mm. And uh, we need you beside the CEOs of each of those. And, um, you know, to help them get there faster. So we've got lots of people who can supplement you in terms of being chartered accountants, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, if you're up for it, we're game. And I, I'm totally game. And so off we went. But Sally, did you have very good um, mentors or sponsors at that point in time? Like, would you have... Would you have pursued that opportunity on your own or was that really down to someone spotting, spotting that uh, capability? Uh, look, so I wouldn't have pursued it on my own and um, mainly because I've always had my head on, I love running businesses, I love running teams, I love running businesses. And so the CFO role was really tangential for mm. me. Uh, but I'd had um, a few people who were kind of guiding me and advising me as, um, as I went along and talking to me about different tangential roles that I could consider. And so there'd been a few seeds planted and there were definitely people within NAB who were really backing me. 
and going, look, let's see how far uh, she can go. And I mean, what a massive chance to take on someone. I, I mean, I knew stepping into that role, what a privilege it was because I walked into, you know, quite a large department of finance professionals yeah. who were brilliant and who had probably been working 24, 20 odd years with their eye on that role. Mm. And then I get airdropped in from nowhere, you mm. know, so um, there were people who had confidence to give me opportunities. Cameron Klein at the time was the CEO mm -hmm. and he was a really big believer that you back talent. Uh, and uh, But there were a number of people in there who were opening my eyes to possibilities. And, you know, frankly, because I'd been in Macquarie for 20 years, uh, whilst it was a magnificent place, I was a little bit insular. I never actually thought about what else I could do. Yeah. Uh, and so they really opened my eyes to that and that there were different possibilities. So very, very lucky. One of the things that's definitely come out of these conversations and talking to people is, um, you know, some of the females I'm talking to who've made it to the most senior levels of business like yourself have really have had a good breadth of career. And, and to a certain extent, whilst you did 20 years at Macquarie, you've certainly managed and are continuing to kind of pursue that breadth. Is that, is that deliberate? Is that, um, you know, not learning? What is that? Yeah, no, I think in my, in my example, it was good fortune. Mm -hmm. So when I was at Macquarie, you know, I was there for 20 years. Uh, I did many things. So I left Macquarie having managed pretty much every aspect of the value chain um, from, you know, sales um, to, you know, technology to the balance sheet, uh, you know, I'd had a really good run at many, many roles across the organisation. And the organisation was really good at giving you those opportunities. If you were a safe pair of hands yeah. uh, and an opportunity would, would pop, uh, it would be, you know, offered to you. And I really learned the art of that, of being someone who was really reliable to do something that was ambitious and interesting. And that really crafted me as a generalist. And uh, I really worked out that I could do anything if I surrounded the right people um, around me. Mm. And I didn't need to be the smartest. In fact, it's so much better not to be the smartest, to hire people smarter than you and to know what I wasn't good at and to create a brains trust. And I really learned that craft at Macquarie. And uh, that it didn't really matter if I was the best person for it because no one beat a great team. Yes. And so I learned that craft always made me a generalist. And it wasn't actually until I went to NAB that I realized that there were these really narrow specializations. Uh -huh. So, you know, I'd go in and I'd see the risk team or, or something like that, or the balance sheet team. And they will have been working their entire career on balance sheet management or, you know, capital management or um, treasury or, or risk, might be operational risk or credit risk. And it was the first time I'd really considered that there were these deep technical specialties. And um, it was great for me because then I really worked out that that was a really important part of the brain's trust as well. You know, the team you built around you. Um, I'd lived with a lot of generalists for a long time and I worked out that actually what makes the world go around is 
the combination of the generalists and the specialists. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it really made me value and appreciate uh, something I wasn't, but it also confirmed for me that I was never going to be one. I, I'm too I'm too quickly bored and, uh, you know, I, I love to be able to deep dive and then pop out and do something else. So um, I would have been a nightmare. I was very lucky to land in a place that incubated me as a generalist. So um, how did you find your role at Culture Amp, your most recent role? Yeah, no, this is a really interesting story because I um, had made a decision to move cities and I've got two teenage children and uh, we were moving from Sydney to Melbourne. So it was clear to me I wasn't going to stay in my Sydney-based role uh, and be five days a week away from my teenage children. And uh, so I made a decision that I was going to resign and I made a decision that I was going to, you can probably take, you know, some time off and, you know, really embed us and our lives back into Melbourne. And I hadn't lived in Melbourne for a number of years. I would work out who the good people were who were doing the interesting things. And from there, I'd reconnect and find a new job. And uh, I um, was turning 50 and I thought, actually, if I don't do something different now, I'm probably not going to. And if I've got 10 years left at work in executive life, uh, I'll run out of runway to do something different. So uh, I sat there and I thought about what I loved about work. And I loved the team sport. So it had to be people-based. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love um, strategy that's led by culture. And I'd spent all my years developing cultures that drove strategy not um, and that they were always culture-led. Um, it had to be purpose-driven. I lo- wanted it to be fast-growing um, because I-, I like a challenge and I don't like things that stand still. Yep. And um, finally, I wanted it to be positively disruptive because I also love that. And so I literally just came up with that list and started talking to, you know, the people I trusted and I knew in Melbourne and saying to them, hey, I need a new job. I want it to be Melbourne-based and I want it to kind of tick all these boxes. And there were two types of people. There were the people who were really frustrated with me and said, no, 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 what what is it? Like, is it like CEO of this or what is it? No, 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 I I don't, I can't name it. I want to find it and find the people. Um, And then there were these other people who went, yeah, I totally get it. That sounds great. And one of them was a great friend of mine and neighbour. And I was talking to her about it and she she really got it. And she said, I know someone you should meet. And um, we were in the deepest, darkest lockdown uh, where you could walk for an hour a day. And as, you know, an extrovert, sixth of six, locked in my own home, like I had a walking schedule because, you know, and my family needed me to be kind of catching up with other people too. And so she introduced me to this guy um, and said, I think you two will have a lot in common. And um, he just lives like a kilometre away because we had the five kilometre radius. And um, I went, oh, yeah, I'll go for a walk with him. And uh, and I started walking with him. And it's Didier Elzinger, who is the CEO and founder of Culture Amp. And so at that stage, 
CultureAmp was navigating COVID and it's a largely offshore business. So 60% of it's in the US, 20 of it's in Europe and 20% here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, running a complex business in COVID times, the US and the UK are really being poleaxed, quite different to here. And we just started to go walking and um, talking about where the business was at, what was happening. And I was sharing my story. And Didier said, look, I really think what you're looking for is at Coltramp. I look at all the things you've said you're after. Uh, and so what we landed on then was um, Coltramp is growing incredibly quickly, sort of doubling um, pretty much every 18 months. And he said, look, we've never done culture at scale and that's what you've always done. Mm. Um, you've never done technology or SaaS. And, but that we're really good at that. Um, so maybe there's a one plus one equals three here. And so um, in my usual kind of way, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll have a go at that. And so here I am. I love that on so many levels. Um, you know, I love um, how many walks were you on before you guys got to that point? Oh, we did a lot of walks. Okay, um, so it wasn't just one walk because that would no, be extraordinary. <laughs> no, and, and in fact, because, you know, people say to me, was it what you expected? Mm. And I said, oh, yes, it was because we'd actually had a lot of time uh, both talking about the business mm. um, and the context it was operating in. And, and also I was seeing how, you know, Didier was dealing with very stressful times. And so, um, yeah, sure, I imagined some things not quite as they were, but... Um, I pretty much knew what I was going into. It had been a pretty good interview process. The best interview process. You're not going to get better than that. So there's good advice to everybody because I'm sure that uh, when our when our series airs, there's going to be a lot of people still in lockdown. So, you know, there's ways to make thing happen, things happen, even in deep, dark lockdown. Sally, can I ask, have you ever... Um, you know, I've spoken a fair bit about some of the double binds that women often find themselves placed under. So um, too hard, too soft, never just right when it comes to leadership and things like that. Have you experienced those at any point in your career? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's so many traps for women. Uh, I think uh, when you're, you know, um, confident, you're perceived to be competent uh, and, uh, you know, that plays really uh, well um, in a gender sense from a male perspective, less so from a woman's perspective, because confidence isn't necessarily deemed to be competence. Um, I think there's really so many traps um, for a woman. I mean, one thing that you may not pick up on this very, very kind um, Zoom podcast is I'm six foot tall uh, and I'm kind of blonde and an extrovert. I'm not a small person. Uh, so I'm big in a room. Like, uh, you know, it's interesting to be a big woman in a room. Mm. And, uh, you know, you take up a lot of space and uh, you're not, it's, it's hard to be invisible. Whereas, you know, I think lots of times um, women are invisible in a room. You, you know, you hear it all the time and I've seen it and I've experienced it where a woman has an idea, but it's not heard until a man has the idea. I think one of my double binds is actually that I am big, I am present. Um, and back to, you know, the sixth of sixth, um, I don't regard hierarchy. And that plays against me and for me. Uh, I think it's really quite binary, the people who love it and the people who go, mm, is she a bit out of her station? 
So, you know, you definitely see that. Mm. So where do you think it's played against you in what kind of ways? Um, look, it's played against me um, hierarchically in terms of people thinking that I'm outside of my station. Yeah. I think it's also played against me um, in a team sense at times. And uh, that one was a really great learning for me because that's something I can control mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, you're with a team and um, you're a kind of physically um present leader who's physically large and also female and I really worked out that sometimes the voices that were most important to be heard would not speak because I was taking so much room Mm. so I I learned to make myself small in those forums to try and create safety for people to speak so kind of that's in a downward sense the double bind which probably doesn't get talked about as much um, in an upward sense, uh, you know, I really have had to learn to play the longer game. I think when I was younger, I would be infuriated by it. I would feel it. I would mm-hmm. be sidelined. You know, I'd be pushed to the end of the table quite literally or, or not invited um, quite literally. Uh, and I had some really, you know, palpable experiences of that. And I really had to learn instead of um, stepping into it and getting upset about it, that playing the longer game was the game I needed to play. And then I could be at the table to stop it happening for others. So, you know, I got really good at um, navigating my way in there to be the person that actually was missed because they were so valuable and we wanted their contribution to the competition. Um, But then I never, ever forgot how I was treated. So, you know, um, get really good if, you know, uh, Melissa, you said something and then it wasn't heard until the bloke said it, going, oh, yes, well, yeah, no, you agree with Melissa. I hear that. I hear that. Um, So, but I did have to play a longer game and have a bit of patience uh, to kind of navigate some of that stuff. Why do you think you've been as successful as you've been? Uh, look, uh, one of my uh, bosses at Macquarie said to me once that, um, and, you know, it was both a compliment and not a compliment. Uh, one of my dear, dear friends still today, he said to me, oh, I always give Sal the thing that is hardest and worrying me most. Mm. And he said, because two things happen. One, she always comes back with 110 or 120% of what I expected. And I don't have to worry about it and it's solved. Second, it keeps her really busy and she's not a pain in the ass. um, But I think it's the first, you know, um, I have a really good ability to work with people to solve things. Mm. Um, I'm positive and ambitious. Um, but um, I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I really drive for teams that are um, intelligent, ambitious and humble. Mm. And um, I think the humility is really big because, you know, we do great things, but there's no heroes. It's like the team wins. And, um, you know, so at times I wonder whether, you know, that's a bad thing that, you know, we don't grab more of the kudos or make ourselves large from the accomplishments 
But actually, I think it's been a real kind of secret to my success because I can get things done. Um, I don't I don't have to kind of uh, be the winner in the race. I want to lift the whole boat. And yeah. people really trust that and they work with that. And um, I work really hard to grow the people in the team. And so I just find people do extraordinary things um, when we line up and go, okay, we want to do this. Yeah, it looks impossible. But, hey, imagine what you can say you've done at the end of it and I'm going to do everything to help you get there. And so... I've always surrounded myself with great people, as said earlier. Um, it, it, it makes no sense to me why you would not hire people smarter than you. It has served me extraordinarily well. Take the pressure off. Oh, well, you know, who wants to have to have all the answers? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, who, and, and who could? No, just thinking, oh, please don't look at me. Like someone in the room must know what yeah. we're doing. <laughs> yeah. um, so... Why do you think, um, you know, a, a, a curious question that I've explored throughout the series is, you know, we've seen, um, you know, good movement at board level with females, still, still a way to go, um, but at senior executive levels, we're not. And, you know, I refer to the CEW report, actually, um, around executives in the ASX 200 with the last two years, 50 CEO appointments and three of them being female. Why, why is that slow uh, and feels like it's stalled. Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's really hard as a, a woman to succeed. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, you're succeeding in a world that is not designed for you. So mm -hmm. let's talk about caring responsibilities. Um, and COVID is just going to be disastrous for this. I mean, I'm seeing women who are just talented and brilliant going, I just can't do it. And, oh, my God, like, how could they with homeschooling? You know, we, we need to create a system and a set of expectations where households and caring responsibilities are shared responsibilities. And, um, you know, we need to accommodate that. So flexibility in the workplace is still so far from where it needs to be. Mm. Um, societal attitudes are so far from where it needs to be. So, you know, and let's just talk about the school system, you know, kick up and drop off times, like so far from where they need to be for us to access all the amazing talent. Um, and, you know, when I, you know, when I left uni, we already had more than 50% women graduating. So yes. more women than men. So we have had for more than 30 years, more women than men graduating. So the system is not working. But I also, you know, am a really big believer that we personally do not do enough. So I'm really big on every one of us has power. And so, uh, you know, just last week, beautifully, someone I worked with probably 15 years ago um, pinged me and said, I did a talk this week and I spoke to how you role modelled um, raising children and having a big job. And made it okay for the rest of us. And I thought, oh God, 15 years ago. Yeah, we, we worked a long time ago together. But you know, things like that change people's destinies. Absolutely. You know, and so are you as a leader providing absolute flexibility? Like I remember a long time ago sitting, it was when I went to um first went to NAB. Um, I said to them, if you want to work flexibly, no, the answer is yes. The question is, how are we going to share responsibility for that? Yeah. 
Mm. And, um, oh, my God, it was so controversial because every all the people, people leaders who reported to me went, what have you done? Like you've just said every one of my team can ask me to work flexibly and I can't say no. Mm. And I went, yes, I have. Mm. And so, you know, we have a lot of personal power on this stuff. We have personal power to um, keep women in their jobs by making it easier. We have personal power to make sure that they're paid fairly. We have personal power to hire diverse teams. Like you don't need to wait for the company policy for this stuff. No. Like, sure, you know, the company may not be there, but your team can have absolute flexibility freedom. They can have like pay for like roles. You make those decisions and you can have, you know, the most diverse group of people across gender and all other attributes, whether it's racial, religious, sexual preference, et cetera, like you do that. And I think we wait too much for people to do it for us. Mm. Um, and actually one of the greatest gifts for me of going into the CFO role was I walked into the finance department and I had the most diverse team I'd ever had. Um, and so I just can't believe we don't use our finance departments more. Like they are full of really smart women. Yes. And they are full of people of different cultural backgrounds. Like I walked in and went, I don't have a diversity problem in here. This is the first time I've never had a diversity problem. Yet, like there was no one tapping into that resource and going, well, like these people are really smart, really commercial. They understand the business. Put them in a line role. Like mm. why are we not using every finance department in the country to seed line role succession? Like it's crazy. It's mm. it is actually the most likely role to go to CEO, but we still don't get the women or the people of color or diversity to the CFO. Like, like we don't even pull them up in the channel they're in, let alone seed them across the organization. Like, you know, we don't use our personal power. We are, you know, the system has to change, but it's only going to change by us doing that because you get a tipping point. So I have interviewed, um, you know, a number of guys in this series too, and and whether it's the guys or, um, you know, regardless, some, some of the feedback that I hear, and I think generally we hear, is um, it's hard to find the female talent. Now, they're not saying the talent's not there. They're actually identifying the talent um, and often encouraging that talent to kind of stand up. But I think some of the points that were flagged with me was, you know, it's four times as hard to convince a female that, yes, they can take that job on um, compared to potentially a male who might be waving their hand around with potentially less suitability. Yeah. Have you ever had that experience yourself in promoting women into senior roles? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, at CultureAmp, we actually put on our jobs uh, uh, when you get to the bottom of it. Um, if you're a woman... You, it is well documented that if you have six of the 10 things we've asked for above there, you'll think you're not qualified. Do us a favour and apply. I love that. And um, But, like, I've just done it right now where I have a, a, a VP role and um, the first round of candidates we got were awesome, mm. awesome, all white men. Right. And so um, I can tell you the room, the mood in the room dropped when I went, that's awesome, like you've done a great job, but I'm not shortlisting until I have some women. Yep. And so 
that required, and literally I, I contacted everyone I knew in, uh, in the world pretty much who for that specialisation would have a connection and said, I want some diverse candidates. They can be culturally diverse or gender diverse, but if you know anyone who is talented who could apply for this role, I want their name. Mm. So I got those sent to me and I, I, I actually got everyone running out into the network to pull people in. Uh, we, it, it added months, months to the process. Yeah. And, um, you know, someone said to me, you know, we're going to lose the best male candidate here because they'll take another job. And I went, possibly, possibly. Yeah. Um, anyway, you know, this week we ended up, uh, you know, having the, it was last week, the final interviews with the best two candidates, one male, one female. Yep. And unanimously, we landed on the side of the female candidate, which was really fantastic because, you know, there's no sense of compromise, et cetera. And, um, the person who I particularly frustrated in this process went, I've learned something here. Mm. You've got to work hard to get them. You've got to work hard to find them. And, you know, I've turned down jobs where, you know, one was um, on paper, it looked amazing. And uh, I actually just knew it wasn't where I was going to thrive as a woman. And um, strangely, it was the thing that I nutted it out with was, um, they had a, a major sponsorship for their brand. Right. And it was a sporting sponsorship, but they only sponsored the men's sport. And I said to them, so, like, you don't sponsor the women? And they, like, there was kind of like, oh, yeah, no, we've never thought about that. And I just went, yeah, no, I'm not going to work here. Like, you know, that's actually quite unbelievable mm. um, and I, I think organizations trip up all the time because women go you're not going to provide me an environment to thrive so if you're having trouble attracting women I'd be looking at are you helping them thrive because women are the greatest networkers ever even though it's not in the pub or the golf course or all the places you think it's like you know I'll ring a girlfriend in a heartbeat and go is this person okay like would you work with them like yes. Are they going to let me go home when I've got a sick child? Like we do that like masters, like, you know, we're world's best practice at that. So the network will tell me like, should I work at that company? Like go there for a skill. Don't go there to stay there because they'll be terrible and you won't be able to manage your other commitments. And mm. so if you can't attract women, I think you're not looking hard enough or you're not working hard enough to provide an environment where they believe they'll thrive. That uh, job description um, line at the bottom is um, is genius. That's good. Sally, a lot of people um, feel um, that they're, they're stuck. They need to make a, a decision about maybe leaving somewhere or, you know, they're not learning or a whole range of different things. You know, what's your advice to people who are kind of feeling stuck at this point in their career potentially? Yeah, I'm really big on make the change. Back yourself. Um, you know, I, as I said earlier, I worked um, at around AMP Bank during the AMP crisis. And, you know, there are a lot of people who were quite genuinely concerned, you know, with everything that's gone on. Um, you know, should I stay here? Can I actually move because I've got this on my CV, etc. And I was constantly saying to them, like, you know, you are not stuck. 
you know, it, it, that is your perception. Your perception is you can't move. And yes, there are times when it's harder than others. Like I think if you're nine months pregnant, resigning might yeah. be a bit tricky. Um, but, um, you know, and, and or, you know, your spouse is out of work or there's things like that. But um, most of the time the constraints are of our own making. I left Macquarie and Macquarie is an amazing place. I loved it. And, um, but I truly had drunk all the Kool-Aid and was frightened that there was nowhere else good in the country to work. And I've met so many of my colleagues and go, like, are there really good places outside of Macquarie? Because, you know, Macquarie's great. Yeah, no, no, there are great places and great people. You can find them. They do exist. Um, And so I think most of those constraints of our own making uh, and I would advise anyone who is lacking the confidence to make the change mm. to find the person that they regard the most and they trust the most and ask them if they think they've got potential elsewhere. Yep. I know the answer will be yes. Yes. And then they should listen to them. Yep. They should feed their ego a bit and listen to them. Sally, in my conversation with David Thode, he talked about um, seeing some leaders who won't reach their full potential because they lack self-awareness um, of, of their, you know, impact on others around them. You sound like quite a self-aware leader, particularly when you talked earlier about sometimes needing to reduce your impact to create space for others and things like that. So, Sal, what would your advice be about the three questions a leader should ask themselves to to become more self-aware? I think the first one is something I referenced earlier, is are you doing everything in your power to create a better workplace for your people? So much that we can do without waiting for the system. Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredibly powerful and spending some time of reflection on what are the things in my control that will create the best work environment is only stuff that's going to amplify your leadership. Those insights are just so valuable and you change the world for the people who are working for you. The second one is, and I'm a really big believer in having a network of people who can you can really uh, share with And so I create relationships with people where the rule is I will share wildly with them. Anything I have that is useful to them, be it knowledge, be it IP, whatever it is, um, I will make it available to them to help them be successful and help them on their way. Some caveats, obviously, in banking, can't be illegal, you can't be colluding, all of those kind of things. But that's pretty easy to navigate. No one asks you to do that stuff anyway. Um, it's like, have you done this before? Who have you used? I've got this problem. And so I really index on doing that because what is reciprocated is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And that is you have a group of people who are both, well, they're capable, they're trustworthy, and they're generous. And so They're a great network of people to help you and it can be help you with things. Um, But what's really great from a leader's perspective is they're great with advice and they're great with feedback. So in this situation, what have you done? How have you seen it? Or what am I doing? What am I missing? 
and giving you the feedback. Perhaps this is what's going on. This is how you show up. This is what's going on. And I find that the feedback thing and finding people who can give you feedback is just gold because it's hard to give feedback and you have to be courageous and you have to really care um, because you can give someone the feedback they need to hear, but you have to risk that they may not respond well to it. And so only people who really care for you are probably going to be brave enough to do that. And so facilitating that environment where people will tell you what you need to hear. Um, and, you know, I think you have to kind of pay it forward. You pay it forward with trust and creating that. So that's really, really big. Look, and the, the last one is um, you've got to role model what you want to see. You really, really do. Um, if you're doing it, it, it's it's not do it I do as I say, um, not do it as I do. You actually really have to. Um, and when I ran the mortgage book at NAB, um, every week on a Tuesday, I would leave the office at two thirty. Now, Tuesday was particularly important because once a month the RBA would meet on a Tuesday and would set interest rates. And so one of those Tuesdays every month was a bit of a nightmare because it was RBA day. But actually, that was why I chose it. I chose it so that no matter what was going on, I walked out the door at 2.30 on a Tuesday um, and I'd pick up my kids from school. I'd have a chat to their teacher. We'd have play date day. So I'd meet their little buddies and I'd have a sneaky Chardonnay with the parents. So I'd meet the parents and the team knew at 7 p.m. I would be available again because my children had 7 p.m. bedtime. Yep. Um, yep. And so, you know, we'd have media inquiries and things like that. They'd hold them until 7 because they knew I was prioritising family. you got to role model this stuff because actually your permission feels a bit like bullshit. Yes. Unless you're doing it. And um, it's no, like, you know, Someone else telling you it's okay is always a leap of faith. It's still a leap of faith, but unless you're role modeling it, um, it's not going to happen. So um, policies aren't going to get you there. So I think that's a really big way to be self-aware of how your leadership and your shadow or your halo, depending which one you choose to have. Sally, your um, your career choices you shared with me have always been kind of follow your heart. Mm. Um what was the difference between maybe what your head was saying and your heart at some of those points? Uh, look, um, there's lots of rational things, uh, you know, that my head was saying, you know, stay on this. This is, you know, more trusted. So for my last move, uh, you know, I was sort of sitting there going, well, if this is a disaster, have I actually lost ground on everything I've built like will I no longer be the executive with the kind of carriage that I have now mm. because I made a misstep and I had a folly into a different industry etc they're the kind of things like they I don't think they're any different you know your own self-talk is the cruelest um uh, something wonderful that my husband um taught me many years ago when I was deep in negative self-talk about myself was he said to me um, if it was Rach, who was a very good friend of mine, and you heard her say that about herself, how would you react? Yeah. Um, and it stopped me, stopped me in my track. So still to this day, I apply the Rach test to what the voice in my head 
says. And um, we've even named the voice in the head. Um, their name is Homer. And he's not very wise. And he speaks to fears, not truths. And we tell him to shut up. Go away, Homer. Mm -hmm. Shut up, Homer. <laughs> no room for you here. Sal, the last question I ask everybody is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? There needs to be more of it. Um, but I think it's be you and make it safe for others to be them. Um, we've done some research at Coltramp uh, because we survey across the globe and uh, we have got data that shows that if you rate high on belonging, mm -hmm. if your staff say they belong, you will outperform. We've proven that on the NASDAQ, on the FTSE and on the ASX of all our survey companies. So, um, you know, be you, show it's okay to be you and make it okay for others to be them. And uh, I had this conversation recently um, uh, with some chief executive women colleagues that we have to be braver. We have to be braver because, yes, there are more consequences for women for being bold. Yes. There absolutely are. Let's not pretend there's not. But if me, as a white and privileged woman, can't take those risks, how can I expect anyone else who doesn't have all the natural-born favour that I have? So it's on me to make those steps, to be the one who creates the ruffles because, you know, if I'm a young woman, like, God forbid, I'm Brittany Higgins. Like, yeah. it's just, you know, the weight of the world is against you. You've got power disbalances, let alone if they're cultural differences or anything else about you that makes you feel like you don't belong. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those of us who are born naturally with, you know, the wind at our back, even though there are bigger consequences, have to be prepared to face into them. Sally, thank you so much. And, you know, you've demonstrated by, by joining these conversations, you've de demonstrated how willing you are to, you know, give what you know and share what you know. And so I'm just so appreciative of you sharing your time with everybody. Thank you for being so generous with it and for joining our conversation. Oh, it's been fun. Um, and I just hope there's a kernel out there for someone, you know, discard what doesn't make any sense for you or work for you and pick up the bits that do and good luck with it. There'll be kernels for sure. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> All right. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.